This message first aired on the radio on May 14, 2004. We're in the second chapter of Galatians. Paul's giving his introduction of himself to the Galatians, and he's doing it not because he needs an introduction, but he's doing it as a matter of defense. Whenever you see the apostle defending himself and his credentials in the writings of the New Testament, understand that the reason is because his apostleship is being called into question. And his apostleship was called into question from the very beginning of it, and it continues to be called into question today by Jewish elements that have been brought into the church. And I say brought in because the fourth verse of the, the second chapter of the epistle of the Galatian churches says that they were brought in. It's an insidious inside work. It's a sneaky work. Jewish elements brought in to question the authority of the New Testament scriptures, of the prophetic writings of the Apostle Paul, and especially to question the apostleship of the Apostle Paul. And of course, the reason, from a spiritual warfare point of view, the strategic reason to question the apostleship of Paul is to question apostleship in general to the Gentiles. After all, it was Paul who's the apostle to the Gentiles, Peter who was specially the apostle to the circumcision, leader among the twelve. And so if Paul's apostleship can be called into question, then can the ministry to the Gentiles be called into question, then can the mysteries which were given to Paul also be called into question, and we end up with Christianity just being some sect or extension of the Mosaic economy or of the Jews, really of the Jews' religion, because if we deny the apostleship of Paul, we deny the truth of the Scripture. If we don't have the truth of Scripture, we don't have any Mosaic economy. We only have the Jews' religion. And so it is an extraordinarily strategic stroke of the enemy of the faith to destroy the apostleship of the Apostle Paul, and the implications of it are immense. Therefore, he needs to defend himself. And he needs to lay out how his apostleship was, how it worked, how important it is. And in that he magnified his office as apostle to the Gentiles, he should be certifying to the Gentiles a quiescence to what ought to be their greatest fear. So the apostle has, as we've covered in previous messages, the apostle has discussed his two trips to Jerusalem and although he had more trips to Jerusalem, his two visits to the Jerusalem church. The first one, where he went privately up, three years after his conversion, after he had already learned the gospel by revelation from Jesus Christ personally himself, not only on the Damascus Road, but also in Arabia, where he met with the Lord. Three years after his experience on the Damascus Road, he told us in the first chapter, in the 18th verse, he went up to Jerusalem and saw Peter and stayed with him for just a little over two weeks. It says 15 days. And then he came a second time up to Jerusalem with Barnabas in the incident of Acts chapter 15. And he and Barnabas went up and they took Titus with them. And in the second chapter here in the first three verses, we'll cover a little bit of that just by way of introduction. He says, 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, and went up by revelation, and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them who were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Now this, who were of reputation, is a word that's going to be repeated again here, as we look into the fourth verses and those that follow. 
who were of reputation. Another place it said who were in conference. These are ones who are held up to be pillars in the Jerusalem church. And who were held up to be pillars in the Jerusalem church? Well, at least specifically, Peter, James, the Lord's brother, and John, the apostle, were held up to be pillars. That is, those who are looked upon as, and that's a traditional word, who are looked upon as leading in the teaching of the law. Not that Peter and John and James were teachers of the law as opposed to grace, but they were looked upon in the Jewish sense as leading rabbis were looked upon in the Jews' religion. It has to do with the way other people looked at them, by the way, not in the way that they looked at themselves. And a lot of times you'll have schism involving people who are not schismatic. We had this in Corinth. This is the same kind of schismatic dealings that were going on in Corinth. Only in the Galatian churches we see that there are there is a better identification of what's being taught and who they are that's doing the teaching. This notion of undermining the faith by Jewish elements is throughout all of the New Testament, and it's not a modern matter, it's an old matter. And there is a modern version and a modern form of this old same invasion of the church, enmity that is on the inside of the churches. Enemy that's on the inside of the churches. So he went and privately informed those who were of reputation in the church what gospel he preached, and of course they agreed with it, and the reason he did it was to see to it that he wasn't wasting his time going up by revelation to communicate with them. After all, if Peter, James, and John are going to argue with him about the gospel of the grace of God, the apostle Paul knows there's no sense wasting my time here. I need to just go on to the Gentiles because God has rejected all of this. But no, God did not reject all of this. There was a remnant according to grace, and Peter, James, and John are part of it. So is the Apostle Paul. And he points out that neither Titus, who was with me, being a Gentile, was compelled to be circumcised. He said there was no discussion of Titus' circumcision. So those of you who are making your appeal to grand authorities in Jerusalem... I talked to the guys who were looked upon as being the top authorities there, and they weren't having anything to do with this except you be circumcised, you cannot be saved. And I want to say this about, now as he talks about circumcision, he talks about the the most obvious beginning piece of what makes marked a person as a Jew in the Mosaic economy, and that was circumcision, that was the beginning point, and it's a ceremonial thing. It's a ceremonial thing. Today, sometimes the way that this Jewish error is replicated in Christian churches, they say, well, the law is a two-sided coin. One is a ceremonial side, and the other is a moral side. Well, I don't agree with that dichotomy, but that's the way it's presented. And then people tell you there's nothing the matter with the ceremonial side or keeping the ceremonial side. Well, let me assure you that circumcision was a ceremonial side. There's nothing as people care to divide that, as people care to divide it on grounds where they don't see what difference it makes and on other grounds where they see what difference it makes. So they say, well, if you lie to somebody, that's that's a moral ground, but circumcision is just ceremonial. And so we don't want to keep the law for righteousness. That is, we if we sin, we don't lose our salvation, but there's nothing wrong with keeping the ceremonial side. Let me assure you that that's not true. In fact, most of what you see the Apostle teaching about is not against antinomianism. 
That is to say, he's not teaching against those who who say, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, or let us sin, that grace could abound. He doesn't oppose them, he doesn't agree with them, but he doesn't oppose them in his writings, because that's not the sneaky way to undermine Christianity. That was what he was accused of. The Apostle Paul was accused of teaching, let's sin that grace may abound, by those who despised him and those who slandered him. But what he comes against is this ceremonial practicing that goes on and that is promoted inside the churches. And I would that we would listen and pay attention to this because today many Christian churches are being taken in by Jewish elements or pro-Jewish religious elements inside the church bringing us into a useless ceremonialism which is of no effect, has no power against the flesh, and which takes the word of God and defeats it by the traditions of men. Well, now he points out that, look, even the beginning of the ceremonial piece, Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. Now we come to verse 4, and we're going to take up verse 4 through 10 as a section, but here's Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in sneakily or privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Now, we have to look at this language a little bit in order to see entirely what's going on and how relevant it is to the churches in Galatia. First it says, because false brethren, pseudo-Adelphus. We've talked about pseudo-apostolos. Here we have pseudo-Adelphus. There is the whole pseudo-problem. The general category is this one, false brethren, pseudo-Adelphus. This could be translated fairly, lying brethren, or untrue brethren. But it doesn't necessarily mean they're not brethren at all. You can't necessarily know. That's why in one place the scripture says, The Lord knows them that are his. Let everyone that names the name of Jesus Christ depart from iniquity. So if you want to be trusted as a brother, if you want to be treated as a brother, you must have a certain amount of practical, obvious sanctification departure from iniquity. Now sanctification is twofold in the Christian life. Sanctification is a moment in time, or some would say a crisis event. At the new birth, when you're born again, that would be a point in time or a crisis event. There is a time when you are born again. Now you may not know the moment. You may think that you can't exactly press it down to the day and the hour, and I don't think that it's important that someone gives a day and hour, a date. Some of us didn't even know what day it was when we received Christ as our Savior. I didn't know what day it was in general at the time when I received Christ as Savior, let alone what day it was when I received Him. But I can tell you there was a time of my life, and it's a definable time, where I received Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I became a Christian. And it was a a marvelous and confusing time. And it only became clear after I began to realize what it was that had happened to me that I received Christ as my Savior. And that was 29 years ago. And so there's a crisis time when you receive Christ. And then there is an ongoing time when Jesus Christ is the Word of God made flesh. And then there is an ongoing aspect to receiving the Word of God where James chapter 1 tells us we receive with meekness the implanted Word. 
and we let the Word of God dwell in us richly in all wisdom and understanding. And that does correspond to being filled with the Spirit, and that corresponds to our sanctification, because at the same time that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that crisis time, that point in time, we are separated unto God. Just like the Apostle Paul was separated from his mother's womb, and he was separated unto the Lord Jesus at the time of his experience on the Damascus Road, he is sanctified. And, of course, you're set apart for God's use from then on. And then there is also, as we have been sanctified already for God's use, there is a practical aspect of sanctification whereby we depart from iniquity. We depart from iniquity. And we are increasingly then set apart for God's use. As he uses us, we continue to be set apart for his use. Now, some of that shows up in the life in the absence of indulgence in sin. Now, here's what it is. It's the absence of indulgence in gross sin. And whether you're a brother or not, you can be a brother, called a brother, 1 Corinthians 5, and if you commit, for example, those sins, if they mark your life that are listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, like that Corinthian man did, though he was called a brother, he was treated as if he was not one. And if you create schism in the church against the warnings of the church, uh, you're warned once, you're warned twice, then you're avoided and you're treated as if not a brother, though you are one. And so we don't necessarily know that a person is not a brother, that it's a false brother. We just know that he's behaving badly, and so he's treated as if he's not a brother until he begins to behave within a very broad and a very gracious definition of behavior so that we can associate one with another. Now, I say we don't necessarily know because we have the parable of the tares, which the Lord said they noticed that there were tares. They said some of this is false. Some of these are not really brothers. And the Lord says, that's right, but leave them alone lest you pull up the wheat with the tares. In other words, you can't have a careful process. There's not a process careful enough or precise enough that you can absolutely know. And so if you go about your own process based on your own observation, you're going to pull up some of the wheat with the weeds. Leave them alone. Teach the scriptures. Teach the truth. You can run them out that way. That's the way a shepherd of God runs out false ones. He runs them out with the truth and the public exposition of it. Okay, you might not have a great big church. You might not make a lot of money. You not, might not become famous. You might not even be well-liked. But you'll be faithful as a shepherd. And so now we have the pseudo-Adelphus. That's the general category. Some of them gave themselves off at the time of the apostles as false apostles. We even have some indication that they counterfeited letters of the apostles that were true apostles. So the pseudo-Adelphus have quite a subterfuge going on including their false apostles, and we are not to be surprised. Peter also discovered these fellows and told us that just like there were false prophets among the children of Israel, there will be false teachers among us. And that means it's an ongoing thing. Pseudo-apostolos during the time of the apostles. Pseudo-teachers, false teachers, amongst the time when the apostles are finished, our age that we're in, and where we have teaching shepherds, the false ones and the true ones. I'm John Malone. This is BibleStudy.net, and I'm one of the true ones. We'll be right back. Stay with us. We have good things out of Galatians chapter 2, things that will help you in your Christian life. 
So we think we can identify what false brother is. We don't necessarily know that we can pinpoint whether he's saved or not, but we do know he's a one who is not bringing the truth. And here it says, false brethren unawares brought in. And this corresponds to while men slept, if we look at the parable of the tares, unawares brought in. That is to say, they were brought in by stealth. Now, here it says brought in. It doesn't say unawares penetrating, but it's actually brought in. That means that there are elements on the inside that bring in the pseudo-Adelphus, that bring it in, whether by carnality or ignorance or agenda, but some kind of worldly sellout. And by the way, friends, when you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And when you're loving the world, you're serving Satan. And whether you're a child of God or not, whoever you serve, that's whose servant you are. It's one thing to be a child of God. It's another thing to be a servant of God. It's one thing to be a child of God. It's another thing to be a mature Christian. And here it says, false brethren, unawares, brought in. Now just because that we're unaware of it doesn't mean that the bringing in of them is somehow some good thing or some excusable activity. We'll have no excuses at the judgment seat of Christ. We'll be judged with righteous judgment. And all of our excuses... It will go for nothing. We'll have none. All of our reasoning will go for nothing. The Lord will judge his people, and he'll judge a righteous judgment. And we ought to be very careful who we bring into the ministry in the local church. In fact, this was a sin that was so extensive, and it still is a sin that's so extensive, bringing in those to teach in the local church and allowing those to teach and putting up those to teach in the local church who are unqualified that the Apostle Paul wrote the scripture to Timothy, lay hands suddenly on no man, do not be partaker in other men's sins. It was so common for unqualified men to have hands laid on them that the Apostle had to sternly warn Timothy not to engage in that behavior as other men did. So here they were brought in. They were brought in. And that means that they had some kind of cooperation on the inside of the churches. And here it says that because of false brethren unawares brought in who came in sneakily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ. And of course, these who came in now, they had their own agenda. They were elements, nefarious elements, attempting to destroy the church. And in Antioch, that went on. Here the apostles talking about his experience in Antioch, where certain ones came down from Judea, in Acts 15, and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you can in no wise be saved. Paul says, Look, I know about this. I saw it happen in our church in Antioch. And uh, these fellows came in with a specific agenda to spy out our liberty. They came in as spies and to subterfuge the church. This is, of course, a method of warfare. Spies have always been a part of warfare. Elements from the outside coming into the inside to destroy the defenses of an opponent has always been a stratagem of warfare. And so here he's pointing out certain spies came in to take away our liberty and to bring us into bondage. Well, what's the bondage? Of course, it's the bondage of the law. And if you remember the judgment of Acts chapter 15, when the apostle took this problem with by revelation, as he pointed out, when he took this problem up to see if 
the church at Jerusalem had been totally overthrown in all of this. You remember that the apostle Peter said, why would we want to put in bondage these Gentiles, which when we never could stand the bondage ourselves, we've been delivered from the bondage. Why would we put a yoke upon them that we ourselves could never withstand? And that yoke, friends, that bondage is the law. And I don't care if you call it the ceremonial aspect or the moral aspect, the law is one, and if you have to keep any part of it, you have to keep all of it. So don't bring your Sabbath-keeping ways into our local church, and don't bring your Passover seders into our local church, and don't bring circumcision into our local church, because we're not going to tolerate it. That is a man of God should say that in his local church. And in fact, that is what the Apostle Paul said he did. See, he said their purpose was to bring us into bondage. Verse 5, now here's a good example of behavior. Here is the example behavior of a servant of Jesus Christ that we should follow. Verse 5, and if you're a shepherd in a local church, or you aspire to be, look at this verse very clearly, very carefully. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour said, we didn't yield to these guys for an hour. Now he says we, he means he and Barnabas and those who were with him. Because I'm sure there were others that said, well, these are dear brothers and they mean well and so forth. And the Apostle Paul said, listen, I'm not going to yield to these guys for one second personally. And it is so important for you, the very least, make your displeasure and your opposition known. And I'm sure that there were those that thought the apostle was rude. I'm sure that there were those who thought the Lord Jesus Christ was rude when zeal for the house of God, he overturned the tables of the money changers and scattered their precious coins all over the floor. I'm sure there were those that says, well, how rude. Well, rude is one thing. Godly is another thing. And your politeness and your fear of man, and that's what it is, your fear of man never serves God. And the Apostle Paul did not fear these men, nor did he fear what people would think of him, because he would not give himself in subjection. He would not yield to these fellows, not for an hour. And of course, here we have a very negative statement and a very emphatic statement, not even for an hour. Because what was at stake? And here's what he tells them, verse 5, what was at stake? That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. In other words, if my work is destroyed in Antioch, I'm destroyed in Antioch, and the gospel's destroyed. Because the apostle to the Gentiles is destroyed, and the word of God isn't going to come anymore to the churches of Galatia. He said this is how important this matter is. This is how critical and how crucial this issue is. If I don't stand against this stuff, it will destroy the faith. It will destroy the gospel. Now there's a portion of scripture in Luke where it says when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back will he find the faith on the earth? And the way that question is written the answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. Will he find the faith on the earth? And the answer is no. How hard is it to find a faithful Christian church? Well it was very hard during the times of the New Testament and it is very very hard today. And let me say that this departure into legalism in the churches, which is noted by the epistle of the Galatian churches here, didn't end in Galatia, it started in Galatia. And we could also call these the churches of 
America just as well as we could the churches of Galatia. But hey, why limit it to America? These are the churches everywhere. They've been confounded by this very process. Thanks be to God, there's instruction for the man of God, an example for the man of God of what to do about it here in the epistle. So now having described what what happened in his church at Antioch and the background of his second visit up to Jerusalem, wherein the matter was judged by the elders and the apostles in the church of Jerusalem as well as the apostle Paul and Barnabas who had already judged it, he now turns back to that reference in verse 6. And he says, but of these who seem to be somewhat, now that, that answers back to those who are of reputation. He says, these who seem to be somewhat, these that I talked about, whatsoever they were, it makes no matter to me. God accepts no man's person. Now here's how confident the apostle was in his apostleship. If others had failed as apostles, he wasn't going to. His apostleship did not depend upon the agreement of the other apostles, though he was happy that they did agree with him. So when he came up by revelation to the church at Jerusalem, it didn't matter to him. It wasn't going to change his mind if they didn't agree with the gospel he preached. That's what he says, whatsoever they were, it makes no matter to me. That is to say, it made no matter to him in the context of why why he was going up. Those who were of reputation, whether it was James and Peter and John, didn't matter to him. It wasn't going to change his mind. Because, as he says here now, God accepts no man's person. God is not limited to a person. If a person fails to follow the word of God, God isn't limited. God just moves along. And here it says, for they who seemed, or those who who were of reputation, those who were in conference, all this, who seemed in conference, added nothing to me. He said, I didn't come away any better than when I went up. I'd already gotten the gospel from Jesus Christ, so what men say, what difference does it make? Now that I'll tell you when you can answer to someone when they start bragging about what seminary they attended. How can man add to you if God has given to you? If God has given the ministry to me, men cannot add to me anything. They can teach me something. I don't say that. I don't say I can't be taught. Here's what I say. Men cannot add their call to me. They can only recognize God's call of me. If God has called me, men should recognize it. The men around me who know me, those are men in the local church. So the Baptists are right. The local church has the authority to recognize the call of God of a preacher. And when God spoke about the separation of Barnabas and Saul for certain work, he spoke to a local church there at Antioch. Now, we would talk about church government maybe some more some other time. Right now we come back here to the fact that the apostle is making a clear point to the churches of Galatia that the agreement of the apostles with him did not add anything to him. It simply verified that they were also right. And that's his point. He says, contrary wise, verse 7, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed to me as of the circumcision was committed unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same wrought effectually in me toward the Gentiles. Or in other words, the one who empowered Peter, specifically, for the apostleship to the circumcision, is the same one who empowered me in that work toward the Gentiles. And of course, that we see now God's orderly ways with the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul. So he said, 
contrarywise, he said they didn't add anything to me, but contrarywise, when they saw that my work was to the Gentiles as Peter's work was to the Jews, and now specifically he says, and when James, in verse 9, Cephas, who's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, and there they are now, he says, seemed to be pillars, here's the word pillars, that is, who, who had the appearance to the Jewish mind of being great teachers of the law, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. He said, look, the division that you're hearing about, the criticism of my apostleship that you're hearing about, those in the churches of Galatia who are elevating the apostleship of those in Jerusalem above my work, that's just them saying that. It's not the apostles saying that. That is not of apostolic authority. In fact, they gave us the right hands of fellowship and agreed with the commission. So your schism is not between Paul and Peter. It is between these fellows that have snuck into your churches and God Almighty himself. And that's what he's saying. Now verse 10, Only they would that we should remember the poor, and that's the poor at Jerusalem, the same thing which also I was forward to do. And that's, of course, the work that Barnabas and Saul had been doing in the church of Antioch. They'd already been doing that work, and the apostle Paul continued to do that work in Corinth, Macedonia. As we studied the Corinthian epistles, we saw that was the gift that he was collecting of the, the, the willing gift that he was collecting of the churches. Now, we don't see him doing that here among the Galatian churches because they're so pathetic in their spiritual content and their spiritual state that he wonders if they'll even survive. He can't even do that kind of work. And he said, of course, I was forward to do that work anyway. And the reason he was forward to do that work, verse 10, because he was already doing it. Now we have a most overlooked portion of Scripture in the 11 through 14th verses. We have one of the most overlooked passages of scripture I think in the whole New Testament but certainly in the epistle to the Galatians and this is the remarkable disagreement in Antioch that Paul had with Peter it is a most remarkable passage because you can see what a rascal that Peter ends up being you can see that that one who denied the Lord six times at the time of his death still had that same weakness now, let me tell you something. Let me remind you of what John chapter 3 says. That which is flesh is flesh. And Peter's flesh is Peter's flesh. He didn't change. His flesh did not change. Peter received a new nature of boldness and courage and, of course, suffered historically, as we know. It was prophesied by the Lord Jesus that he would suffer a martyr's death, and history bears that out. But whether history bears it out or not, the Lord prophesied it, so it's absolutely true that he died a martyr's death, finally, for the Lord. But in the meantime, this guy had the old same problem at least once, and he had it in Antioch. And it was a good thing he had the old same problem in Antioch instead of in Jerusalem, because Paul straightened him out and sorted him out, and when he got back to Jerusalem then, he could remember that he did get sorted out, and there was a better man for it, and a better leader for that, although it doesn't look like he prevailed all that much when we come to Acts chapter 23. And we're going to look at that incident in just a minute when we come back. I'm John Malone. This is BibleStudy.net. There's a fight coming. 
So now we come to verse 11 of Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to take up the 11th through 14th verses here today. When Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face. Now there's a time here where Peter comes down to Antioch. We don't know exactly when that time was, but it's while Paul is in Antioch. Peter comes down to visit after the time that the Jerusalem church asked Barnabas to go down to Antioch. Now the history here, again, just to repeat a little bit, Barnabas was sent down to Antioch to go as far as Antioch by the Jerusalem church. Apparently there were Jewish believers gathered together there. They thought that it would be good for Barnabas to go down and teach him. So Barnabas went to Antioch, and one of the first things Barnabas did is he visited Tarsus, and he went and he got Saul of Tarsus, who had been hiding there, more or less, or who had been sequestered there after his trouble in Damascus, and he brought Paul into the church at Antioch, and they continued there together as Barnabas and Saul, who taught. And then, of course, they were called together in Acts chapter 13, Separate unto me, God said, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then later it became not Barnabas and Saul, but Paul and Barnabas, as Paul took the lead over Barnabas. And then we had the division between the two of them, a great argument over that mama's boy, John Mark, and Paul took Silas, and Barnabas took John Mark, and Barnabas went down to Cyprus, and Paul and Silas continued in the apostleship to the Gentiles to which Paul was called. And here we might even see one of the reasons behind that. Maybe we don't see it. Maybe we see a reason behind why Silas was more of a good fit for Paul than Barnabas. Let's look at verses 11 through 13, and then we'll look at verse 14 in a bit. Here's verse 11, Galatians 2. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Now here's another example, by the way. When a leader in a church is to be blamed, he's to be withstood to the face. Paul later told Timothy, The elders that sin rebuke before all that others may fear. Now here's a public rebuke for Peter. Because he's not blameless. An elder must be blameless. That is to say, an elder must conduct himself above board. An elder must conduct himself with an agenda that is open and that is God's agenda. Doesn't mean he never makes mistakes. Doesn't mean he doesn't have problems. It means that his agenda is above board and it's God's agenda. And when he's on his own agenda or a different agenda or he's walking outside the Word of God in the public gathering, then he needs a public rebuke. Men today are too fearful of other men to do this public rebuke, and they're afraid that they'll never get along again. But you rebuke a wise man, and he'll hear you. And of course, faithful are the wounds of a friend. A lot of times you try to be a Christian friend to somebody, whether you know them well or not so well, and all you get to yourself is a black eye, because only a wise man understands that a rebuke is one of the best forms of love. And of course, the scripture says, open rebuke is better than secret love. So here now, when Peter was come to Antioch, the Apostle Paul withstood him to his face. And here's another thing, friend. Withstand a man to his face. Don't withstand a man behind his back. Withstand a man to his face. This is brotherly behavior. This is the more excellent way. If you're going to withstand somebody, do it to his face. 
and do it in public. And here it was, because he was to be blamed. That is a man who's a leader, a man who's a leader in the church. Now here's why was Peter to be blamed. For that before certain ones from James, now here it says, before that certain came from James, Peter did eat with the Gentiles. Now you say here, certain ones from James. This, of course, is a piece of scripture that troubles us. That apparently those who associated with James, we don't see that James is necessarily one of these. I don't think James was one of these. But certain ones from James were zealous of the law and brought a certain fearfulness. Apparently those who associated with James were zealous, illegal, but brothers, but brothers, but in a very legalistic mode. In fact, a very, I won't even say legalistic mode. That softens the blow. These guys were Jews who wanted to continue to act like Jews. These are Jews who wanted to continue in the Jews' religion. And we have these in our churches today within Christianity. We have Jewish believers. They receive the Lord Jesus Christ, and they want to continue to act out the Jews' religion in Christian churches. And the Gentiles, of course, want to act out their Gentile ways in Christian churches. But Christian churches do not act out the Jews' religion. Your religion is not welcome here. And by the way, you Gentiles, your idolatrous religions are also not welcome here. Christian culture is one. The Christian church is one. You can go to foreign cultures and you'll see all kinds of different things and different ways of behavior and you have to take your shoes off for this thing and you eat that thing and you got to do this thing this way and that thing that way and inside the country culture that's just fine. But inside the church of God it is one culture and it's the house of God and when I come into my father's house I know how to behave. We all ought to learn. That's why Peter wrote one of his epistles. He told Timothy that you know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And so we come into our Father's house, uh, wherever it may be, whenever it may be, we ought to know how to conduct ourselves. And one way that we don't conduct ourselves in the house of God is to make a distinction between Jew and Gentile, because there is no difference but one new man in Christ. So Peter, he was acting very much in fellowship in Antioch as Gentiles were coming in. He didn't act out his Jewishness. He didn't associate specifically on Jewish ground there in that church. He associated on Christian ground. Remember, they were first called Christians in Antioch. So it says, before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. He sat down, he'd eat with the Gentiles, He'd eat anything that he felt like eating. He'd eat the Gentiles' food. This, of course, was the lesson he was supposed to have learned thoroughly when the Lord gave him the vision as he was at Simon the Tanner's house before he went down to meet Cornelius and open the door to the Gentiles, Call thou not common what I have cleansed. And so before certain ones from James came down, he ate with Gentiles. But when they were come, verse 12 he withdrew and separated himself, and here it is, fearing them which were of the circumcision. 
And so here's the fear of man. And of course it brings a snare. And there was Peter caught in that snare. Before these guys come down, he eats with the Gentiles. He's got no problems. Here come certain ones from James. They're going to bring in their whole Jewish deal. They're going to eat at the separate table. They're going to have their ceremonial washing. They're going to talk about kosher rules and all this kind of stuff. It's the Jews' religion. It's the Jews' religion. And they come down, and Peter knows what they think. He knows that they're in association with James back at the home church. And all of a sudden, he fears this guy, and he begins to withdraw himself and separate himself. Well, that's a horrible thing. What is he teaching by his behavior? He's teaching that there is a distinction. And by the way, he's teaching that there's some moral value to what goes into the man. And, of course, the Lord, immediately after he taught about the traditions of the Jews defeating the Word of God, he immediately gave a parable out about it is not what comes into a man that defiles the man, but what comes out of the man. And, of course, they who wanted to understand him said, Lord, explain this parable. He says, it's not, it's not food that comes in that defiles the man, neither is it your waste products that come out. That's not what I mean. I mean what come out of the man comes out of the heart of man. That's where sin comes out. That's where the problem is. It doesn't have anything to do with diet. It doesn't have anything to do with bodily function. It has to do with sin. And so here's Peter teaching the wrong principle. What principle is he teaching? He's teaching that there's something that you can eat that's evil. That's what he's doing. He's teaching that in the Antioch church, in this account, in verse 12, by his altered behavior. And Paul wouldn't have anything to do with that. In fact, I can just see Paul saying, hey, listen, have a ha- here's a ham sandwich. And maybe while he's eating a ham sandwich, he says, what is up with you, Peter? You've been eating this all along. Here he says, now, other Jews dissembled likewise with Peter. Verse 13. And when Peter, of course, Peter being an apostle, when he now begins to break up the association in the eating with the Gentiles, then others follow his bad example. Because that's what it is when you're a leader. People follow your bad example more quickly than they'll follow your good example. So here others dissembled likewise with him. Middle of verse 13, here's a little hint that of why maybe Barnabas and Paul ended up not going together when Paul took Silas, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. Now this word dissimulation, this just has to do with disorderliness. This has to do with division. In fact, it is the word hypocrisy. This is the word hypocrisy. Now when were they being hypocrites? They were being hypocrites when they began to separate themselves. They began to pretend like they were observant Jews, we might call it that. And there is no freedom in the Christian church to be an observant Jew. If you're a Jewish Christian, listening to my voice, you need to get over your religion. And uh, if you're having a problem with your weak conscience in that, well, the Christian church is a good place for you to learn right practice. But don't you dare try to bring your practices upon me. And there are Jewish Christians today. There are Christians that were formerly Jews today. There's really no such thing as a Jewish Christian. There are Christians that were once Jews today who will not associate with Gentiles, but who form their own so-called churches. Let me assure you, there is no such thing as a Jewish church. There is no such thing as a Gentile church. The church of God is neither Jew nor Gentile, but one new man. And there's no place 
for Judaism or the Jews' religion or an observant Jew in the church of God. So you don't come into the church of God with your head covered, brother. You take that hat off. And you don't come into the church of God and tell me that there's dietary laws that you're going to keep out of the scripture. You have no freedom to do that. None whatsoever. And you have no freedom to observe Jewish feasts in your Christian life. None whatsoever. None at all. And don't be bringing that into the church of God. And be rebuked in that thing. Well, here, now, Barnabas was even carried away. So you see how strong the thing is. A very powerful thing. And, of course, Paul, he gets in Peter's face. He gets in Peter's face, and he says, Hey, this isn't going to happen around here. Verse 14, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth, now notice that their behavior there, which was just to separate themselves from the Gentiles at meals, that was their behavior. See, it's a ceremonial thing. That behavior... He said, they walked not uprightly. He called them hypocrites. That's a very strong word, by the way. When he says they don't walk rightly, they're not walking straight. According to the truth of the gospel. They're not walking straightly. They're not walking according to the truth of the gospel. I said unto Peter, before all. Now, the Bible says before them all, but he didn't say it just in front of those who dissimulated, those Jewish elements. He said it in front of the whole church, and he said this, If thou, being a Jew, lives after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why are you compelling Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Now here he's saying this, Listen, if you live like a Gentile, and you don't live like a Jew because you've been saved, why are you compelling the Gentiles to live as the Jews? Now where was his compulsion? Let me tell you, his compulsion was his behavior as a leader. If you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. But leadership's in the kitchen. And when you are a leader, and you act a certain way in the public gathering, you are leading people, whether you like it or not. And here it is called compulsion when Peter did it, because of his office, because of his exercise. He's an apostle. He was compelling the Gentiles to live like Jews. And so now Paul launches in on one of the great exhortations of Scripture, and this opens up the doctrinal section of the book of the epistles to the Galatian churches, and look out, because Paul is rolling. And we don't have time to take that up today, but we will take it up. I'm John Malone. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. Stay with us, and may God bless the meditation you have as you read the book of Galatians.